Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Stephen Heathorn, sorry about that. He is the author of Britain since 1688, A Nation in the World, published in 2014. And this week, we're going to talk about 19th century England. And one of the reasons I wanted to make this episode is because, you know, I read a lot of Dickens in in my childhood. And I think a lot of us have, especially if you're living in Europe. I'm not sure about the American American audience here, but, but those of us in Europe have that most likely grew, grown up on Dickens. And here, a lot of his stories take place in the 19th century. And I want to find out what it really was like to live in that era. And he, he does touch upon it, but you know, of course it's fiction, so you never know what's really real or not. But I always open my podcast, if you haven't listened to it, with how the 19th century, how did that happen? How did Nidra once study in the 19th century? So how did I end up studying yeah. the 19th century? Oh, um, well, I, uh, I'm i a British historian. Thank you for having me on your, your podcast. And um, I, my first my first work as a PhD student was on the 19th century. So I, I started with uh, the late 19th century and and education for the for elementary education for kids of of the working classes. Um, and I did wrote a dissertation, then a book on that. And that's how I got started. And then I've moved back and forth. So I've I've done more work on the 19th century, but I've actually done quite a bit of work on the 20th century as well. I mean, it is generally, we don't focus a lot on England today as a, as a country, not Great Britain necessarily, but it is a fascinating era, isn't it? Because, you know, that's when the British Empire was on its height and that's the when it started to see the early modern era. And it's just, you know, it's a lot of things changes in the 19th century that develop into the, the modern era, isn't it? Yes. Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, the 19th century, late 18th and early 19th century is is the pivotal port, pivotal point for Britain, but especially England, as you note, uh, developing the first world's first industrial economy. Uh, the empire had been going on, uh, been being developed, changing quite a lot in the 18th century, but over the course of the 19th century, of course, expands further. The fact that the um, the English economy, well, the British economy too, because it's not just England, but the, the predominantly the English economy um, becomes this superpower of, a, mm-hmm. of an economy. It becomes the Britain becomes the wealthiest country in the world in the 19th century by far because of the Industrial Revolution and its empire means that it can, for example, you know, bring cotton from India to Britain, process that in the mills of Lancashire, turn it into textiles and to, to clothes and then sell it back to people in India cheaper than the people in India can do it themselves. Mm. So, I mean, that's what the industrial revolution did, right? It, it generated this enormous wealth for the owners of, and the landowners in Britain. But of course it also came with huge social 
consequences for the people who worked in those those uh, factories and the, the the birth of the modern industrial economy is found in Britain, of course, quickly spreads across Europe uh, over the course of the 19th century, but it's Britain that it starts. And they see the British, especially in England, Northern England, sees the first of the social and environmental impacts of industrialization. So um, I want to start with this because, as you know, pre the industrialization, and we don't to touch upon this as well. You mentioned it, but we don't to touch deep more deeply in in it later. But as you know, in before in medieval, uh, pretty much kind of up to this point, it has been like serfs have been the lowest, and then you got the nobility. So what? But during the nineteenth century, what was the gap like between? Well, there wasn't any middle class yet, was there? And so what was the gap like between rich and poor? What, what was it? What was okay. the living standards like? Sure. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an enormous gap. So, I mean, I'm not to romanticize in any way the pre-industrial period. But, for example, people living on the land, agricultural workers in the pre-industrial period in Britain, life was brutally hard for them. But... They had uh, mostly a sense of collective ownership, right, or, co- or or collectivities around the village and around the, the landowners for which they worked. Serfdom which, has been abolished by this point, yes, right? Serfdom yeah. is gone, yes. Uh, and, and over the course of the 17th and 18th, and it finishes in the 19th century, in, in Britain you have this process called enclosure, whereby common land, which had been worked in common by agricultural uh, labourers, is uh, enclosed into private lots, into private property by the landowners who are, in, quote unquote, improving the land. They take away customary rights from those those peasants, from those uh, agricultural workers and those those people who before had some title to the land, some sense of ownership of the land in, in common with one another is taken away from them. They become, uh, they move from being serfs who are tied to the land, but have uh, certain uh, certain rights and responsibilities with that land, they t- take the land is taken away from them eff- effectively, and they become nothing other than wage laborers, agricultural wage laborers, and they're they for the rural population over the course of the 18th and into the 19th century, their living standards plummet as a result. Not again, not romanticizing serfdom at all; it was brutal. But uh, by the 18th, was it easier kind of to serfdom, and then what what the currency mm-hmm. was? No, it's not easier. It's just it's just a completely different way of life, yeah. right? So, uh, in the by the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, you have this class of agricultural laborers who no longer have any uh, say in the way in which the land is run. Landowners uh, uh, basically divvy up their land to farmers. Farmers uh, are increasingly using machines on their lands to to improve productivity. And the sense of collective ownership, the customary notion of the common, the commons, is gone, is, is, is displaced. It happens first in England, and then it will happen later in Scotland with the, the clearances. Um, and as a result, uh, agricultural laborers, you know, before they, they you know, shared in the good times and the bad times, the, there was a reciprocal relationship between the landowners. The landowners had some responsibilities to make sure that their, their peasant workers didn't starve. That's gone by the 19th century. Landowners no longer feel that any obligation really um, to help their workers on the land when they're in trouble, when there's bad harvests or, or when, when um, the situation has happens in the 1820s and 1830s, when prices um, uh, go down and 
wages go down. So the, the, the nadir, the bottom of the agricultural uh, population, and still prior to 1850, most people still live in on the countryside, in the countryside. Uh, wages for laborers are, 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 are the lowest that they've been in centuries. And this impoverishment of the, uh, the agricultural labor force pushes some of them to go to the cities to find work in the, industri- the new industrial areas. But, but many can't. They can't leave the countryside for one reason or another. Um, and something else is happening to them as well. One of the, one of the th- ways in which the Industrial Revolution gets going is that in the 17th and 18th century, those agricultural f- uh, workers, when they're not working, because of course farmers aren't working all year round, when they're not working, a lot of them took in handiwork, craft work into their cottages in the off season, in the winter and plate times when they weren't doing the harvest or they weren't plowing, weren't sowing, they would do uh, uh, semi-skilled, sometimes semi-skilled, sometimes skilled uh, craft work like textiles. Well, that is increasingly being lost to them. The hand loom is being phased out by the new industrial machines, mm-hmm. these huge looms in these factories where one, one worker looks after 20, 20 looms or 20 um, uh, spinning jennies that create the. And we do the, still the see this today as well, don't we? With all the of robots like taking other taking people's jobs, that kind of thing. The, the whole, sure. whole modernization. Yeah, and absolutely. It still it's, goes it's, on today. Absolutely, and 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 also, I mean, the, the you know the, the situation of agricultural workers today in very many parts of the world is similar to what it was for English uh, agricultural workers in the 18th and, and early 19th century. So, so so two things are happening to those agricultural workers. They are, they are losing, you know, their customary rights to the land. They are being pushed off the land. That fewer and fewer of them are needed because of the introduction of farm machinery. Mm. So there, so there's a surplus of these workers, right? And that's pushing down the wages because if you have a surplus of workers, then you, you know, uh, an employer can charge or can offer less wages and always going to get people to work for them. And at the very same time, the other way in which those agricultural workers sometimes made money through textiles, that's now being mechanized as well in the mills of Lancashire and Yorkshire. And as a result, a lot of these agricultural workers, you know, find themselves in abject poverty. Now, it it gets so bad at the beginning of the century, from the 1790s through to the 1830s, in many parts of of England, landowners were pretty much forced. They didn't do it out of altruism they did it out of because they'd seen what had happened in france in the 1790s mm-hmm. um they pay their workers to not work there's a system of it's a charity system basically where when when their agricultural workers are really desperate they will pay uh, a, a bread um uh tax so basically local landowners pay for or subsidize i should say the cost of bread to keep the cost of bread low so that these workers when they're not working don't starve that changes too, though. In eighteen in the eighteen thirties, the new political economy. You know, so what's developing in Britain is this idea of laissez-faire, right? The idea that the the market should rule, and a, a number of sort of uh, philosophical radicals, as they're known at the time, um, argue that. And, and Dickens is very critical of them, by the way. But uh, a lot of these philosophical radicals article article argue that. The free market should determine what, what goes on in the economy. And therefore, we should not have this system of subsidizing workers, agricultural workers, to not work. And so in 1834, there's a new piece of legislation called the New Poor Law. Um, and it's, it supplants the old system whereby, in the old system, going back 250 years, 
if you could claim that you were from a parish, so all of Britain is divided up into parishes, right? Where a parish, there's a parish church and, the, and there's something called the vestry, which is a council of lay people, of, of secular people who work with the church to make sure that charity is distributed across the parish. If you could prove uh, as a worker that you were settled in a parish, you were entitled to a certain amount of charity in, in times of tough and a local Rich people, did, did people local... try to cheat this? That, that, that just well, that's what the, that's what the what's, that's what the philosophical radicals were basically arguing that the, these people should not be just given uh, a bread subsidy or, or bread. Uh, they should. Was be it easy to, to kind of cheat, like lie no. to this? No, no. It, I mean, it's not. And 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 we're talking about people who are in abject poverty. They're not. They're not. Uh, they're not scamming system, like we might say. But what 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 this this old system did. Because you had to prove that you were resident in that parish or that your family had been resident in that parish, it discouraged people from moving, mm. right? Because if you left to find work elsewhere and then you ran into hard times, you could not claim that parish relief. Yeah, That law settlement meant that, you know, you had to go back to where you were from. And that was difficult. So people were reluctant to leave where they were from to go find work elsewhere. So the philosophical radicals and these other reformers said, well, look, we need workers in the new industrial mills and the new factories. There's lots of surplus agricultural labor. If we change the system uh, and also make it such that uh, claiming poor relief is so horrible, people won't do it. Then we will readjust the economy and people will go where they are needed and we will and local landowners won't have to uh, pay these exorbitant taxes to pay for people's bread subsidies. So this new poor law in 1834 is a piece of social legislation. It's a piece of social engineering, and it's absolutely hated uh, by uh, people in Britain, especially not just in the countryside, but in the, the urban areas too. And it's something that Dickens knows all about because it enshrined the idea of the workhouse. Now, workhouses were these places going back again a couple of centuries where if you had, if you uh, could not work, you were you were uh, you were frail, you were old, you were infirm or there was no work for you, you could go to the workhouse and you would be put up by the parish and you would be fed uh, a minimal, you know, not, not, a, not a great existence, but you'd be fed, you would you have, you, you know, your children could be cared for and you would work there. Mm. The new poor law made these workhouses mandatory and made it illegal for parishes to provide any kind of poor relief except through the workhouse. And the workhouses, the new workhouses from the 1830s were based on this principle called less eligibility. And it comes right out of Bentham, you know, Jeremy Bentham and the utilitarianism, this idea that, you know, uh, the, the greatest good for the greatest number is what should drive policy. Well, the, this idea of less eligibility was you make the poorhouse as miserable as you can, and then people won't want, well, they'll do, well, they will do anything to avoid going to the workhouse. Yeah. Something, so that they... I want, something that I want to ask about as well, and sorry for interrupting you there, but you know, I don't know, I assume it was the same, because we talked about farmers and moving uh, a little bit earlier, so I want to go back to that a little bit, because sure. in the Scandinavia, if I remember correctly, there, and I believe the same was in the UK as well, if you had a farm, you had like, two or three children, the oldest was, was eligible, of course, to get, take over the farm, but the two others... They were carved into a smaller areas of the farm, right? And they, had, but they, if you had more than like three, four children, children, some of them had to move, and some of them couldn't find. It was tough to be number three, number four. 
in the land. Was it the same in Britain? Like if you were number three or number four, you have, didn't have rights in the farm. You yes. had to kind of find other work. Like you were, the farm was cut up in smaller pieces to some of the family, but others, the, if you were younger, which if it arrived, it was it was rough to right. kind of. So it, it it's similar, but it may be a little bit different from Scandinavia. So when we're talking about farmers, people who are the actual run people who run farms, they mm-hmm. in, in Britain are actually are well off. Okay, so the system in Britain is you have landowners, the big landowners, the nobles, the aristocracy, the gentry, they own the land, they rent it to farmers uh, who are known as yeoman farmers. They are sometimes called the gentry as well. Um, some some of the some of those farmers own their own land, own, own their own land. Some of them just rent it, um, but then they hire those agricultural laborers, right? Now they're young. The younger sons and and daughters uh, in Britain. So Britain works on a, a on a very strict system of primogeniture, which means that the eldest male heir gets everything. Yeah. So in the aristocracy, that's the way it is. For most of these yeoman farmers. They don't divide up the farms. If they own the farm, they would not devo- d- divide it up because uh, that would be d- diluting their their yeah. uh, their property. If they rent the farm, they ha- they'll have no power to divide it up. So those younger sons, if they don't work on the farm with the with the owner with the farm uh, the farmer himself, then they have to go off and do something else. Um, and if they are relatively well off, they're likely going to either get an education and go into the church, into the Anglican Church, usually. Or the military. So a lot of farmers send their sons to the Navy, to the army. They might go into business. They might go to the cities, make their own way. If if the farmer is relatively well off, they will give their sons and their daughters some income or some money to get started. But they don't divide up the farm. (laughs) That that doesn't happen very much in Britain. I'm not sure if I remember correctly but i believe that's part of the system that they've divided it into smaller farms and not big chunks but like real small chunks of pieces that of happens land. that happens in ireland yeah and that becomes a real problem in ireland because it's a it's a, it's a somewhat different system in, in ireland and by the, the 1840s a lot of peasants are working very very small plots of land which means when the when the famine comes they are devastated yeah um but in england the, the 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 tendency in the 18th and 19th century is the concentration of land holding, not the, not the making it smaller, but farms are becoming bigger and bigger. They're becoming more efficient because of, of, of economies of scale. So the, and then that's what that's and that's why these agricultural laborers who make up the mass of the people who work it because the farm there's not, aren't that many farmers, right? There's thousands of them, but there are millions of workers who work on those farms who have nothing. They don't own anything, and that's who what we're talking about the agricultural laborers. They don't own their farms at all. They don't. They don't own the cottages that they live in. They rent, and they work for wages, and that's what had been pretty much enshrined by the early nineteenth century. Is this system where you have the big landowners, then you have the the yeoman farmers and the, the gentry who own the farms or rent the farms, and then hire workers to work them, and they are relatively well off. And then you have this mass of agricultural laborers, and that's the that's the, the division in the countryside. It's different in the cities, of course. Mm. Now, something that I haven't touched on yet is the blacksmith, because that was still, still a kind of not big, but it's it was a subject, it was a work piece of kind of work that still was around, and we see this well, in Great Expectations by yeah. Dickens again, where Joe is a blacksmith and he does hire, he does have an apprentice, but he fires him in favor for his, for his son, and not son, sorry, but nephew Phil, 
fifth in in the book just honey takes over but right. what was it kind of what, what was it like to be a blacksmith in the in the 19th century how 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 was it was it the dying field or was or was, was well, it still another realm it's still it's still a viable it's still a viable skill i mean that's a skilled trade right so mm-hmm. in in addition to the the unskilled agricultural workers in the countryside used to have a number of people who have skills and if you have a skill um you you can command reasonable wages you can you can command a reasonable rate of 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 income um now blacksmiths tend to congregate in the villages or they can tend to be found in the villages and in and in small towns right but throughout the 19th century horse horses are the main form of transportation still right so you got, you are going to need blacksmiths it was still, we're still quite a few centers away from trucks at this point. Exactly, exactly. And and even though canals and the railways, of course, will change everything over the course of the 19th century, still the roads are dominated in the countryside and the city by horses. And so, yes, you still need blacksmiths. Yeah. Now, over the course of the 19th century, some of those farm machinery, that farm machinery that blacksmiths would earlier had helped make is being taken over by larger you know, companies in the cities, they, they, they are making the plowshares and they are making the, the seed drills and the threshing machines. But early on, it was the local expertise. It was the local blacksmiths that would do that. So yes, being a blacksmith is a, is a relatively prestigious working class job where you, you have a certain amount of status, you have a skill, it's a fairly protected um, as a skill. I mean, you mentioned apprenticeship, you know, uh, in yeah. uh, Great Expectations, you know, that was skirting around the rules Right. I mean, in the 19th century, it's a a period of flux between the old medieval system of guilds, Mm -hmm. which really protected skilled crafts, uh, trades to, you know, tried to prevent too many people becoming skilled to keep wages up and unions. So trade unions really start developing in the 19th century, but they have very much like a guild mentality. That is to say, what we do is we limit the number of people who can be part of this skill and that will keep up wages. And that's what how union trade unions work through most of the 19th century. It doesn't really change until the 1880s. And then you have what we might call modern unions starting to develop. Now, as, now in Greater Expectations, we do see that Joe has a different ap- apprenticeship for H.O. Pippinian. Did, did it happen a lot? Like, let's, let's say I'm your son, right? And yes. Hypothetically. And you have another apprentice that, you know, is going to, it's an on you, under you, but then you say, "I, I want to favor you for what to favor me as an apprentice instead of you." So you're sorry, I have to let you go because uh, you want me as a, to take over the business. It was that common. I don't know, to be honest, how common <laughs> that was. I think that might have been a, a bit of poetic license by Dickens. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the a master. So the system was, you know, you had master craftsmen, journeymen, and apprentices. And you know, so you apprenticed for a certain amount of time with a master, and that made you became a journeyman. Your journeyman then could had a uh, basically had a credential that they could go around and uh, work for other uh, masters, and eventually that the, the job was the the aspiration was to become a master yourself. Yeah, whether whether a master would actually overlook an existing apprentice for someone else, that's a you know it, I'm sure it did happen. Uh, I couldn't tell you how often that uh, mm-hmm. that happened, um, but it wasn't supposed to happen. If you were apprenticed, you were apprenticed for a certain amount of time. You, as an apprentice, you lived with the master, right? And you, you, you did your six or seven years, and then you became a journeyman. Yeah. That's how it was supposed to work. I'm sure there were, I'm sure there was cases where it didn't work like that, but that was how it's supposed to. 
No, I want to move into the cities, especially London. And, you know, again, I want to refer to Dickens, which I will do quite a lot in this sure. episode. But, and we see, and I want to refer to Oliver Twist, uh, Twist yeah. now to see how, what was, what was, I grew up in the orphanage. And what was orphanages like in, in 19th century England in okay, general? So- was it kind of what we see in Oliver Twist, kind of? Yeah, where, no, where the mean, people as nasty as they seem, or where they like, uh, where they where they or to put it up. Reality is always a little bit more complicated than yeah. than literary depictions. There, you know, now, now that the Oliver Twist's experience in the work in in the orphanage mirrors very much what I was talking about workhouses, right? Uh, sort of 19th century, early and mid 19th century institutions like the workhouse and orphanages. Uh, were not nice places. They were, now they were all you know the the, the abuses. There was there's lots of uh, parliamentary inquiries about these kinds of things, and the abuses always came out as 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 horrible. And there were there were cases of incredibly horrible conditions in workhouses and orphanages. You know the the case of Oliver Twist and his uh, his experiences is probably on the sort of the slightly exaggerated side of things. But not by much, you know. The, the famous scene where Oliver asks for more, mm. right? He asks Please, for more, sir, more. can I have some more? Exactly, right? Yes. Um, that that is straight out of this principle of less eligibility, and the the idea that no, <laughs> you get what you are given, and you are happy for it. And if you don't like it, well, then go, mm. go out into the into the world and make your own way. That's the whole. That's the whole ethos of these institutions, which are not run by governments; they're run by uh, charity organizations, but they have this 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 idea of the deserving and the undeserving poor, mm. and uh, this this distinction. And if you are deserving, you take what you are given, and you are grateful for it. And you 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 know, and and that we are providing this uh, this this charity. You should be grateful for uh, for this because there's no, of course, no welfare system of any other uh, any other kind at the time. Um, and you know, you know, the idea that someone would ask for more, you know, it would be. You know, you know, ludicrous, uh, ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. It, it would have been it, for, for in many places. Now, having said that, of course, a lot of these institutions were run by people who were well-meaning, altruistic, uh, and did want to help. And they wouldn't have been so as so egregiously horrible as as Dickens. Um, I mean, Hillary's. most Dickens characters were horrible, to be fair. Yes, and you know, and I've, and Dickens is, a, is is a very astute social commentator, and what he's doing in most of his novels about social conditions, he's not actually pick, he, he picks up he, he presents these horrible people, right? But he's really critiquing the ideas behind those people. Mm. He's critiquing the idea that you know of this laissez-faire economy, you know, you and, on the, and these ideas of you pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. He's critiquing the idea that you know because he had personal experience, right? Dickens actually did work in a factory. He knew what it was like. He his father was in a debtor's prison, so he knew what debtor's prisons were like. So it's not he's not making this stuff up. What he's doing, he's he's trying to critique for other Victorians, for other people in the nineteenth century. You know, this is what our system is doing. Now he undoubtedly exaggerates in certain degrees as a novelist. He does that, but the underlying you know ethos that he is critiquing that's absolutely there. Mm. This idea of less eligibility, of you know laissez-faire, of 
you know, the deserving poor as opposed to the undeserving of, yeah. you know, that people, some people are poor because they want to be poor. You know, this is a ludicrous idea, but it was very common that just some people are lazy. And so, yeah. you know, the orphanage uh, and institutions like that, there's a famous one in London called the Philanthropic Society, which took in orphan boys. Um, it eventually, it would ship them off to colonies. That, you know, this is a, a common problem or a common solution, quote, to the, the problem of poverty in Britain, send them elsewhere. Right. This 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 attitude of it's your fault that you're poor when clearly it isn't right. It clearly yeah. isn't there. It, it, they, they are born into the situation or they find themselves in these horrible situations. And yet there is this not for everybody, you know, but a, a sizable chunk of the population has has bought into this this ideology of it's your fault that you're you're poor. You take what we give you. Or you can go and, and do. I mean, you I can have. see where Karl Marx gets this idea of communism Absolutely. from. It's, it's it's not an accident that Marx and Engels were based in Britain when he was writing all these things about the condition of the working classes. You know, mm. you know, wh- whatever you think of Marx, you know, he was observing these mm. these uh, the, these conditions, and you know, so of course he he sees this as part of a uh, of a of a of the economic system. And while I'm not going to lie to you, I kind of agree with a lot of what Marx says and theorizes about, but as we've seen several times by now, it doesn't work in practice. And if we we tried it, it doesn't work in practice, if you ask me. I I mean, it's a nice theory, but I don't think it works practically. I I mean, I would agree. I mean, his, 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 his... His observations and his analysis of what was causing what was going on in the 19th century is very astute, right? And then there's there's lots to pick apart there and say, yes, his solution to the problems are more problematic. That's how I would put it. You know, and, and I would agree with you. I don't I don't th- I don't think his theory of the inevitability of of a class of society has aged well, to use your <laughs> your use your your podcast name. It's it's that, that, but that's for a different that's a different topic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, it's it is no accident that uh, Marx, who was a journalist, just like Dickens, is observing what's going on in mid nineteenth century Britain, and he's and he's obviously very critical of it. That, that, you know, that there there is a, a very large kernel of truth. Uh, to what Dickens and, and Marx have to say about social organisms. Now, I don't know so, if this, this might be a little bit off, to, off the derailing here, but I don't know if you've seen Star Trek, but in that world, they kind of abolished poverty and they abolished the idea of money there. So it's kind of seemed like start the new Star Trek where they reunited the world-ish. That kind, it's kind of seemed like a communist world in a sense, the, the Union of Federations, in, as, at least on Earth, kind of seemed, seemed a little communistic. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Okay, I, I, fair enough. Just, just me and I. Beyond my, beyond my, uh, fair my enough. Experience. But yeah, we we talked about it in the the back to the topic again. We we talked about the industrial revolution, and as we seen a lot, of, talked about a lot of people they move into the city to find jobs there. But but what was how did the moving into the city affect cities like London, York, Birmingham, etc. When the industrial factor factories started up? Started being established. How right. how did that population boom into the right. cities? Well, that kind of that's, effect. That's a that's a great that's a great question. So and and here I have to I have to put my historian hat on and I have to start making a few distinctions. So the industrial revolution, as we understand it, really is in textiles. Right, it starts in textiles. Wool and cotton is, is what really drives the industrial revolution in Britain in the nineteenth century, and then it becomes metalworking. Right, mm. coal, steel. Um. The industrial cities are mostly in the north of England, 
Manchester is the is the is the most famous one, you know, but also Leeds, Huddersfield, Bradford, Liverpool, a whole bunch of them. They're all in the north. And they're in the north because that's where textile uh, production is. So when you hear about, you know, when you talk about the, the mill, factory mills, uh, uh, you're talking about those places. And in the 18th century, they were small towns and they explode in population. So Manchester goes from less than 20,000 people uh, in 1800 uh, to, you know, 200,000 within 50 years. It, it just explodes, right? And and there's, there are good reasons why those cities are in the north. You know, textiles is textiles started with wool and Britain for centuries had exported wool to Europe. Um, and that was based mostly in the north in Yorkshire on a bunch of hills called the Pennines. And the mills, when when they were uh, turning that wool into to wool and cloth, used water wheels for at first, right? And the water would stream down these hills. So they needed they needed places where there was a constant stream of water. England, I don't know about Norway, but I know, you know, I, I grew up in England. England is a very wet place, famously a very wet place, right? It rains a lot. It rains especially- Hasn't in, done it this summer though. Yeah, no, I know, <laughs> yes, I know that. Uh, but it, it rains especially in the north and it runs down those hills, fast moving streams, turn the water wheels. Eventually those water wheels would be replaced by steam engines famously, right? And that would be the driving the industrial revolution. And when you could, you could move those, put those steam wheels anywhere, but it starts on, on either side of the Pennine Hills, Wool in Yorkshire, cotton in Lancashire, the two counties in the north. And that's where that's where Manchester is, Liverpool, Leeds, Huddersfield, Bradford, a whole bunch of these cities. They eventually, by the mid-19th century, those, those cities are filled with factories, with smokestacks. They become incredibly polluted. Uh, the, the, the urbanization is incredibly fast. The houses that go up are really poor, uh, uh, poor in, t- in, in terms of building. They are... Uh, the, the typical house are row houses, uh, you know, uh, on long streets, no no greenery anywhere, no gardens, no backyards. Three or four houses would share a, a, a lavatory, a, a toilet in, in the backyard, and that would be it. They usually had, uh, they were called two up, two down if they were a bigger house or one up, one down. So they'd have two or four rooms. Um, and, you know, you'd have whole families living in them. That's what the situation was in the industrial cities. London is different. London is already a city of a million people by 1800, right? It's already a huge, it's the, it's the largest city in the world. Um, and Isn't London, Istanbul the last largest city in the world, I believe? Sorry? Istanbul, is, I thought oh. Istanbul was the largest so, at, I, at the time. I, I, by, I, by 1800, I think that it, that may have changed, but I, I, mm. but I, I, I defer. It I was at least sure. it's for many centuries. Yeah, 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 yeah. London has grown rapidly mm. over the course of the 18th century. In the 19th century, it certainly does become the largest city in the world. And by the end of the 19th century, it will have gone from a million uh, to over 7 million. Because now, people London, come in, right, to find jobs, to find... Yeah, in well, London. That's right, and London is not an industrial city in the same way that Manchester is. It's a city of small workshops mostly, um, and and the docks and uh, finance and a whole bunch of other industries. It doesn't really develop the same kind of character. It comes rapidly polluted because it's so overcrowded, um, mm-hmm. and but it's also London grows by filling in the space between villages. If you go to London today, the various places names in London are all villages. And, 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 and there's been urbanization between the villages to connect them up. That's how London grew. Um, so it's not, it, it, there, there's lots of working people in London, obviously, 
but they tend to work in smaller workshops rather than huge factories like in the north so there's a bit of a difference there it was, a dirt, the... it was a dirty town wasn't right it oh, was absolutely. like there wasn't asphalt and like it is today it was just mud and people who were throwing dirt out the window with waste sure there's so so the the, the there are sewers but there's um they're, they're not very good until the 1850s mm-hmm. so um you, you know, there there is increasing interest in sanitation over the course of the early 19th century there's a series of cholera epidemics that hit london particularly bad in the 1840s and it's there it's discovered through these cholera epidemics that cholera is a waterborne disease and it becomes clear that the fact that people are pouring their their sewage into the river thames and taking the drinking water out of the river thames is co- is part of the problem mm. so in the 18 18- Uh, 50s there's a, a real move to 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 clean that up there's a there's a very famous episode you know the houses of parliament the government in 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 london is on the river in the 1850s there was something called the great stink of london uh, basically the smell from the river thames was so bad in the summer that they couldn't sit in the house of uh, uh, in the parliament uh because the people were retching it's just so awful and that was that was the the impetus for major engineering works So in the prior to the 1850s most of the banks of the of the Thames there was no embankment there was no banks it was just it's a, the Thames is a tidal river and so it was just it sloped up to the roadway they built the embankments that you see today around to to contain the river so that they could put huge sewer lines alongside the river to take the sewer out to the ocean or out to the north sea um and that all that all started in the 1850s so sanitation really becomes a big issue from the 1850s precisely precisely because the cities are terrible and the mortality rates in london and in these other industrial cities in the north is just horrendous now what was the working hours like no, and i want to draw from fiction again and this kind of a weird one probably but in the role royal doll in charlie on the shuttle of factory we do see a little bit that his, his father he works long hours at the factory and it, the house they live in is not very not a very great house but it, we do get a hint that he it's long hours working at the factory where right. for example like i said in royal doll his father in yeah. in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he works so long hours and he's always exhausted coming home and they have barely any money for it. So what was our wages like and working sure. hours in the so in the 19th what, century? So part of the part of the industrialization is um uh, uh, the process is bringing people into the into the factory. Prior to industrialization, people worked on their own hours. You know, they or they worked the to the two seasons and to daylight, right? I mean, they had a little bit of control over the time that they worked. They worked hard. With, I don't want to romanticize it, but the the factory had to because of the machines that were that were central to the to factory production, and also in places like London where in these these where workshops, uh, small workshops, it's the clock that rules thing. And this is one of the big changes that's sometimes overlooked in the industrial revolution people having to work to the clock they have to be at work at a certain time and they have to stay at work for a certain time and the and reason for this is machines had to be running constantly right to, to be profitable they had to be running constantly they started at a certain time and they were shut down at a certain time and someone had to be running them so people change the complete change in people's lifestyle working to the clock in industrial towns uh, often people didn't have the didn't have watches or clocks at home so there would be a factory whistle this you know the factory whistle will go off you need to come to work 
Sometimes people had to walk quite a long distance to get to work. They'd have to get up very early. Um, and then they would work in the early days, in the uh, 18th and early 19th century. We're talking about usually at least 12-hour shifts, sometimes 14-hour shifts, with maybe 20-minute breaks and, a, and, a, and a, an hour lunch or half-hour lunch. So we're talking very long days. Yeah. And then you then those those factory workers often had to rent their accommodation from the factory. So those row houses that were built really quickly were often built by the factory owners. And so you had to to rent from the people that you were working for. And sometimes in some places you had to buy from the company store. So these companies had complete control over your life. Now wages are not good, such that um if you're unskilled, if you because what, what one of the things about these factories, of course, they don't require skill to work. That's the whole point of them. Yeah. You don't need an apprenticeship. You just have to learn how to run the machine. So wages are not good. These employers will hire women because they can uh, can uh, uh, pay them less because there's this notion of a breadwinner's wage that the man should always get paid more than the woman because they're the main breadwinner. But most uh, working class families, not all, but most unskilled working class families could not afford on just the male household, mm. the, the, the father income. They needed supplementary income to survive that subsistence from the wife if they, and, and the children. Children were employed in these factories infamously to climb into the machines while they were running to keep to clean them. So these great big looms and these great big machines that span the, th- the thread, they were always running because the, the, of the water wheels or because of the steam engines. You, you needed small people to get in amongst these machines as they were running to clean out all of the fibers that got jammed up. So you had children as young as six or seven working in these in these factories. You also had children working in mines, by the way, in coal mines, and women working in the coal mines. In the 1830s, this became a scandal because so many of these children were getting injured. Uh, they were getting paid a pittance. The working conditions were causing... Um, uh, you know, headlines and tuberculosis so was the thing too, right? Sure, to sure, yeah. Especially I mean, in diseases. the coal mines, if you if you worked there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the conditions in the mines were probably the worst, which is why it actually starts that these these uh, reforms in the 1830s and 40s start with the miners. And, and one of, one of the things also that was really scandalized the Victorians about what was going on in the mines is that the miners. There were men and women working in the mines. The, mine, the men worked at the coal face. They would take the coal. They would be chopping out the coal from the coal face. The women were used to push the wagons full of coal along tracks to the, the pit head and up the elevators. It was so hot in the mines that the, the miners... the dust the, from the coal too, right? I imagine yeah, yeah, when they jet into your mouth. Absolutely. So they would, they, they would emerge from the mines completely black. They would develop uh, lung disease later in life. Uh, coal, mi- uh, coal miners lung, it was called. But the, the, this big scandal in the 1830s was that the miners were naked. It was so hot in the mines that there was no point wearing clothes, right? And they were, their clothes were going to get disgustingly uh, blackened anyway. So they were naked. So there were men who were naked and women who were half naked in these mines. And that was the scandal that first got Victorian reformers all up in arms. Oh, my God, there's naked people working, men and women working together. And then the conditions of the mines were investigated and, and long hours, ridiculously low wages, very dangerous conditions. And so in 1833, there was an act passed uh, on child labor, which basically barred uh, children from the mines and reduced the number of hours that children could work 
uh, in, in factories. And then there was a later, in the 1840s, a 10-hour act was passed to limit the number of hours you could work in a factory, in a textile factory, to 10 hours because bef- per day. Because before that, it was quite common to see 12, 14-hour workdays. So by the time that Dickens is writing in the 1840s, there's already been lots of reform. But he's he, he it's still the case that in workshops... It's not uh, good. It's not good. No, 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 it's not good. And, and the workshop that he worked in, you know, would have incredibly long hours. And throughout the 19th century, so you mentioned, well, excuse me, Rowan Dahl, even in the, the end of the 19th century, people working in London um, workshops, people who made matches, for instance, the famous Bryant and May match girls, they would work on uh, would be working for 10 or 12 hours a day, seven or six or seven days a week. They would usually get Sunday off, but not always. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, Saturday was a half day. So you'd work five full days and then half a day on Saturday. That was a big advance. That was a big improvement. So work conditions were terrible. Uh, there's, no, there's no getting around this. And, but there was efforts in the 1830s and 40s to start regulating it, to, to make it a, you know, a little less awful. But it's still the case that people are not making very much money. And if you're unskilled, you are living in poverty, even though you're working 10 or 12 hours a day. And there's no way out of it. You know, there's no way, you know, unless you're incredibly lucky or incredibly skilled at something, or, you, you, you know, you have, you know, you, you are lucky enough to go to a, a school and, and can work your way out of it that way. But the, the whole myth of social mobility is just a myth. There's very little way out of this situation if you were born into a working class family. Something I want to touch about, because as you know, Dickens wrote quite a lot. And there's you've seen Jane Austen writing in this era too. That's, we got a lot of literacy coming out from this era that's still a classic today. And what was the literacy? Because there must be some literary literary people there and being able to afford to buy books, right? Because right. it is, would be famous if there was like almost zero liter- literacy in, in right. England at the time. So how, what was the literacy but, like in the 19th right. century? So it changes, it changes over the course of the century. You don't have um, compulsory schooling for children until the 1880s. So prior to the 1880s, schooling is entirely voluntary. The Church of England, the Anglican Church, does have schools that they run across the country, which uh, by the mid 19th century, about half of the children of the of the of of the population attend sometimes. Right. Not compulsory, but they do attend. These are usually fee paying schools. So you, you need to put in a little bit of money to go to these schools, which is why the poorest of the poor never send their children to school. There are, but but working class families do see the value of literacy, right? They, they, this is one, th- you know, or many of them do, not everyone, but many people see, you know, the only way out of our situation is if you can become literate. So there are things called the ragged schools. Uh, in the mid nineteenth century, this ragged school movement develops. Uh, usually, it was uh, spinsters, women who uh, who were literate themselves. They may have been middle class, now lower middle class, had fallen into genteel poverty. They will take in children of the neighborhood or of a neighborhood for a, a modest fee um, to, to provide them a basic amount of literacy. We also know that a lot of working class people tried very hard to teach themselves autodidacts, right? You know, teach themselves to read. And, and, and they did read. And there's, there's a, a couple of really good books about this, about how over the course of the 19th century, more and more working people did read. And teach, if they if they went uh, they went to school a little bit, 
we're talking, you know, a couple of years of schooling prior to the 1870s and 80s. Not a lot, not much schooling, but enough to get them the basics of reading. Um, and they would read. And then by the, the 1850s and 1860s, you have some organizations setting up public libraries, which are seen as improving, and so-called mechanics institutes for the working classes where working, working men, especially skilled working men who have a skill, could go to the mechanics institute and take uh, classes, use the library, uh, improve themselves. And this was a big, a big, there was a big effort of sort of mid to late 19th century of self-improvement. You know, you improve yourself and literacy was absolutely key to this. Mm. So yes, the top third of society is literate for sure. So, you know, the aristocracy, the middle class and the upper levels of the working class are all literate and, and value literacy. And then increasingly over the course of the century, more and more people in the working class become literate too. But still by 1870, half the population is not literate. And that's why the government steps in and starts mandating schooling and, and creating new schools, and um, which are compulsory by the 1880s. I believe we, we talked about this in the, our Habsburg episode about the Habsburg Empire, where yes, as, I think as early as 18, se- late 17th century, I think, I'm, I'm not sure on the remember, I remember the exact date, but the, they started mandatory school that people had to go to school mandatory as early as 18th, 18th, 17th century there. But, uh, right. but they, of course, they didn't always do that. But, you know, they, right. they had a, had the opportunity to grow as early as 18th or 17th century, right. I think. And right. I think it was in the Maria Torres or, or the, the next one in line. I don't remember. But yeah. they started literacy quite early in the Habsburg. Yeah. Britain is re- Britain is really late for Europe. I mean, it's true in Prussia too that Prussia has mandatory schooling long before for England does. Scotland is better than England in, at its school. Its school system is different, and and they they uh, have better literacy in Scotland than in England. England is entirely voluntarily until the 1880s. What the one thing that that people did in the early 19th century uh, voluntarily was go to Sunday school where there would be a little bit of literacy along with religious education. And that's, again, the church. So in Britain and in England especially, it's the church until the 1870s. It's the church that really determines whether you are literate or not, because it's the church that sees itself as providing education. Of course, they do this as part of their religious uh, program as well. Um, And it's not until the 1870s that the state, that the, the British government mandates that there should be secular education and it's not until the 1880s that that education is compulsory and it's compulsory at first just to age 11 it doesn't become later than that until the 20th century now something we haven't touched upon yet is how democracy modern democracy started form in in the 18th sorry 19th century england because as you know that's when the royalty and it's not like modern constitutional monarchy but it starts to kind of from the House of Commons, House of Lord at the time, yeah. right? And that's that the Queen, or I believe it's Victoria at the time. Yeah. How she kind of started to think that maybe I can do less and let other people do more work. Yeah. And so, uh, so how does that democracy, sure, sure, who can choose, sure. who can elect and who can like yeah, vote yeah. for elections? How, how does it work in general? Okay. So in, in Britain, you, the, 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 the beginnings of parliamentary democracy or a parliamentary system, because it's not a democracy in the nineteenth century. No. It's not. It's not. It's not what as what we would understand democracy. Um, but 
It starts much earlier than that. So in the 18th century, you start that the House of Commons increasingly becomes the most important political body. The, the monarch recedes. It's, the monarch is still important, but really it's the House of Commons and the House of Lords Parliament that is making the political decisions from the 18th century. So that by the time of Victoria, although she nominally, uh, although officially she has power, she really doesn't. She doesn't interfere in politics very much at all. She, she doesn't have that final say in. No, in what you want. I mean, she, she, you know, it's become, it's become, it's become customary that the monarch defers to the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Isn't, isn't it that, Victoria that become kind of like empress after a while? Like she yeah, so of, she's after the feudal empire fell. Yeah, she's the head of state. Right. She's like a president or, or, you know, or a monarch today. She's the head of state. So ceremonially, she's incredibly important. She opens parliament. You know, she is the empress by the, from the 1870s of, of, the, uh, of India and the rest of the empire. She does. She does have you know, political power, but it's very muted. She she is not she's not making political decisions in the same way that the czar is in Russia or that the Kaiser will in Germany. She's just not making she just doesn't have that kind of of political sway and that's 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 developed over the course of the, of the previous two centuries but and this is the important thing the people who really do have the say who do have uh political power in britain in the 18th and most of the 19th century are the arist- are the aristocracy it's right so it's the house of lords no surprise there yeah there's the lords it's the nobles the aristocracy in the in the house of lords they dominate the house of lords of course it's a hereditary house but also in the commons in the 18th century, in the early 19th century, the vast majority of people who were elected in Britain are actually nobles. And the reason for this is because you're not paid to be an MP, to be a member of parliament. You have to have an independent income. And uh, the, the electoral system in Britain until the 1830s was largely run on patronage. If you were a landowner, I have a son, he's going to be the MP for this area and you will all vote for him. And there's no secret ballot, so everyone knows how you vote. So, you know, you have to declare who you're voting for. And the people who get to vote is very narrow. Uh, uh, only about one in six men uh, could vote in, in Britain in the 1830s. So, and they are uh, property owners themselves. To vote, you have to have uh, property. You have to have land or a house that is worth a certain amount of money. If you uh, and, and you pay, and it's based on how much taxes you pay right so that meant that means that you know five out of six men do, do not have the vote no women have the vote right so until and that changes slightly in the 1830s there's a big um a, a revolutionary change called the great reform act which tries to get middle class people to vote it's all about getting the middle class the, the factory owners because one of the one of the oddities of the, the electoral system in britain there's not it was not based on equal electoral districts, right? You could have a constituency, an area of you know, that voted people that might have only 10 voters. And then you might have another one that, let's say Manchester. Manchester only had one MP for a city of 25,000. Whereas, the, you know, in another part of England, there was a, a constituency that only had 10 voters, 10 people in it entirely, right? So yeah. it, was completely, it was completely medieval, very archaic. It was reformed in the 1830s and this great reform act of 1832 which gave more and more of the middle class wealthy middle class people people who were not nobles but who owned something they owned a business or they owned a little bit of land they got the vote for the first time and this changed again in the 1880s well 1860s is the the next one there's another reform in the 1860s and 
the the top strata of the working class gets the vote there. So the skilled workers get the vote. So by the end of the 1860s, one in three men has the vote. And then in the 1880s, more of the working class is enfranchised. But it's still the case. Still women can't vote, yeah. Right. Women don't get the vote until 1918. And then only some women. The, 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 uh, the franchise is not completely equalized until 1928. It's not till then that all men and women over the age of 21 get the vote. So you don't really have democracy, full democracy in Britain until the, the 1920s. Mm. And then in the, in the 19th century, it's still the case that property determines if you get to vote or not. Property rights. Do you own a business? Do you own some land? Do you own or rent a house of a certain value? And the other thing why it's not democracy is some people have more than one vote. So if you went to a university, you got to vote for the university MP and for your where your house was, was, was. And until the 1880s, if you had a business in one part of the country and lived in another part of the country or in two different constituencies, you got two votes. So really, it's the case that, uh, you know, the wealthy still dominate the, the, the political system right through until the, 18, uh, until the 1920s. The 19th century is not democracy, but it's, it's a parliamentary constitutional system. The monarch's role is very minor. And increasingly over the course of the 19th century, the House of Commons becomes the important body. And it's people who are elected to it, unlike the House of Lords. The House of Lords becomes less and less important over the course of the 19th century. And in 1911, there's another big reform. And the Lords are basically, you know, they, they can delay legislation, yeah. but they can't veto it anymore. Now, so so it, it's yeah. an evolution. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, so, so we talked about this in, again, I would refer to our Habsburg episode, that elections in Europe at the time shouldn't be quite, especially in the Habsburg Empire, that it shouldn't be quite violence. Was this the case in England as well, that it was violent elections? In the, in the early part of the century, yes. They, could, they, they were very, they were very uh, rowdy because there was no secret ballot until the 1870s. You know, everyone knew how how you vote. So there was there was bribery, corruption. It was common for, for instance, for a local landowner who, who wanted a certain person to be the MP to basically take all of the the people who had a vote or the electors and get them drunk. Right? Uh, yeah. There was fights uh, at the polling places. Um, there are certain moments uh, over the course of the century where there is organized violence uh, over politics. Um, there's more violence about industrialization, which I could talk to uh, talk about briefly in a minute, if you like. But there's yeah. there's moments in the 1840s. The 1840s is known as the, as the Hungry Forties. It's a period of real crisis across Europe, right? Because the 1848 revolutions across Europe, mm. Britain suffers this too. In Ireland, there's the famine, uh, which is exacerbated by uh, British government policies, and in in England, um, there's something called Chartism. There's a working class movement that's demanding working class political rights. The working class as a whole does not have does not have the vote, does not have any representatives in parliament. It's now the aristocracy and the middle class. And the working class in Britain makes up three quarters of the population. They basically have no representatives. Um, and so it, it, there's an effort to get the vote for workers in the 1840s by this extra parliamentary movement called uh, uh, Chartism. They had a charter, they the Great Charter, they called it, and they wanted to get votes for uh, for them and, and MPs who would be paid so that they could represent the, the working classes. And that, they they presented great big petitions to, to Parliament three times. There was violence associated with that. So there was political violence there. It never rose to the level of revolutionary violence like you see in France or, or in, in the German states or Italy. 
But it was it was part of the same general upheaval. Workers demanding that they get political representation yeah. because they are excluded. There was more. I should say there was more violence against the, the industrial system in the earlier part of the century. There's some a couple of really interesting ones. I don't know if you want to hear about this, but you know, in the agricultural areas, there was something in 1830. Something called Captain Swing, and there were riots. Um, you know, agricultural workers uh, would rise up against landowners and burn down uh, farms and hayricks and 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 smash machines. It's Luddism, of course, famously earlier than that in 1811 and 1817, smashing machines. And these are really protests against the system. It's not machines per se. It's we are being exploited. And the 1830s is the 1830s and 40s are this period of great turmoil. And of course, that's exactly when when Dickens is is you know that's when he was working, and then later he'd become a, a journalist, and then he'd become a writer. So he he's he's seeing all this turmoil at that time. Now, something you haven't touched upon yet is that, and of course, it starts in the Renaissance as far back as then, but atheism start to take off in in the 19th century right so as and as we know gibbon was a well-known atheist and he blames of course christianity in chapter 15 of the decline of fall that the christianity was the fault of uh, the decline of the roman empire yeah. but and but how did this the atheism that started to take off at this point right how did that affect both religion and england as a whole right so it's not i wouldn't say that atheism is is making great inroads in the 19th century, except amongst an intellectual few, right? To, Gibbon is, Gibbon is uh, you know, an intellectual. There are certainly not in the 18th century and in the 19th century, there are certainly intellectuals who are, would be, we would say, were atheists or agnostic. Were they thrown upon when yeah. it's, it's a Trump yeah. came, I mean, Trump came century, out? Oh, yeah. So, no, I mean, the 18th century was more secular in many ways than the 19th century. The 19th century, there's this great re- religious revival in, in Britain. Right. And it's a it's a evangelical revival. So evangelical religion really takes off in uh, the early part of the 19th century. It starts actually in the 18th century. I mean, Wilberforce was the great anti-slavery campaigner, right, because Britain abolishes slavery in in the early uh, part of uh, the 19th century. And Wilberforce had been this great campaigner against slavery. He's an evangelical. Mm -hmm. It's evangelicals that push that. Right. It's a moral crusade. Mm -hmm. Evangelical evangelicalism takes over the middle classes. It's a very much a middle class phenomena, uh, but middle class uh, moralists are very religious. The 19th century in, in Britain is a very religious century. For the working masses, religion is part of their lives. Some people are more religious than others. I would say it's difficult to, to pinpoint how many people are atheists. There are plenty of people who, you know, my family is, is a good example of this, who never go to church, never went to church, but still vaguely believe in some kind of Christian uh, theology. Not not in theology, they believe in a Christian God. I mean, they don't know know any theology, right? They never go to church. The only time they see... I'm more or less the same, I'd agree with your family then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty much an atheist myself, but I mean, you know, my family going back, you know, the only time they ever went to a church was when they were married and when they were buried, right? That's the only time. And for much of the population in the 19th century, the working class population, that would have been the case. They didn't go to church. Sorry, you fell out. So the, uh, yeah. the census, yeah, so the census is, is uh, has been going since the 1800. In 1851, there was a, a religious census. They counted the number of people that went to church on a Sunday in the middle of 1851. And people were shocked 
at how few people were going. Less than half the population was in church. <laughs> and that was shocking to them. How did that compare to the, the 18th century? Where I think, you know, the, the church is a social institution as much as a religious institution, right? Mm-hmm. And, and especially that's the case in the Anglican church. You go to church for social uh, interaction. You, you're as an expectation to go. In the 18th century, I think the church filled that function more than a religious one, although that there's Methodism is on the rise in the, in the 18th century. More and more people are getting interested in religion. Evangelicalism happens. So it's a real mix. Some people are religious and some people aren't. The 19th century is more religious than the 18th century. I mean, there's, there's, there's you know, the 18th century is, of course, the year of the Enlightenment, right? Which is profoundly anti-clerical. It may not be anti-religious, but it's anti-church. Don't like the churches. The 19th century, the church is, is much more powerful in Britain. The, the uh, Anglican church is, is, you know, and the evangelicalism in the Anglican church is really important. And it's hard to, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's a part, just such a part of people's lives. They could not think of their life without this religious backdrop, yeah. just like in the Middle Ages, just like in the medieval period. You people, they, they couldn't be atheists because they couldn't conceive of being atheists, right? That changes in the the seventeenth eighteenth century, and but it swings around again in the nineteenth century. You do it starts have people... in the Renaissance, right? Through atheism, yeah, it starts yeah. in the Renaissance. Sure, sure, but the, you know, uh, you know, Rabelais and and uh, the, the the period of the the fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth centuries, and then the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. It, there's there's a growth of disbelief or, or or criticism of church. The church, I mean, the Reformation is also you know a criticism of the church, not of religion, but of, of a particular church. In Britain, in, in you know, they have their own uh, Reformation, but still, people are profoundly—not uh, profoundly. Religion is a part of their life, even if they don't go to church. They vaguely believe in a god. You, you—it's hard to find very many committed atheists, and they're certainly not speaking out publicly. There are some, but there's—they're—they're they, not—they're uh, not like Britain today, where where a majority of the population does not believe. Yeah. Yeah, that's 20th century development. In the 19th century, most people believed, even if they didn't go to church. I do have one last thing I want to touch upon before we go. Sure. And uh, we talked briefly about this, but of course, women, and you start talking in the 19th century, I want to touch upon them before we go. Because, you know, as we started, women started going to work and they were terrible and paid. What, what was it? From the, did it better the condition for women in the 19th century? Did it kind of worsen the condition for right. living standards for women at the time? So it's so a great question. So, of course, women have always worked. It's a myth that women never worked, right? They've always worked, especially amongst the, the agricultural population and, yeah. and, and in workshops. The 19th, 19th century working conditions for women in factories clearly were worse because they had, had no control over the pace of work. They had to leave their homes uh, to do so. It's a minority of women who, in the working classes who work outside of the home. It's not the, not the majority. Most women do work, even if they don't work outside of the home, uh so in uh, so, so they might take in work there's still piecework being offered or they might do laundry for their neighbors or they do a whole bunch of things uh i think the, the situation for women work women as workers was worse in the 19th century than it would have been in the 18th century mm. um and this becomes uh, an issue over the course of the 19th century because this is this ideology that develops from the late 18th century, it's partly to do with evangelicalism. It's partly to do uh, with other developments in, in the way in which the s- society is viewed. But there's this notion that women shouldn't work, right? They should be 
in the domestic uh, in the domestic sphere, the whole separate spheres idea that men are out in public and women are at home and they're the moral guardians of the home and they just work at home if they do any work. Well, that's impossible. Is that that's that's a middle class ideal, and that that increasingly is the case for middle class women. They don't work outside of the home; they supervise the home. If they're aristocratic women, it's completely different. Uh, but they're the tiny minority. For working women, for working class women, they can't not work. You know, this idea that they should be just looking after the children and and the household is is a pie in the sky dream because they need income, so they will do odd jobs or they will work part-time or they will go to the factory if necessary or what the job that most women actually do in the 19th century is domestic service they're servants right they if they are young this is what you did as a, as a, a young woman you when you left home you went and worked in someone else's house and you lived with them you worked in a middle-class house the vast majority of women workers in the 19th century were servants you if you were young you worked in a, a, a middle class or aristocratic house as a servant uh, until you uh, got married, and then you'd usually be discharged. Only very few working uh, servants were married. If you were older, you would be a day servant. Most people couldn't afford live-in servants. But what de- what defined you as respectable middle class was that you had someone else to do the domestic chores. So you would hire women to do the housework, basically, of which there is lots in a a 19th century house because there's no appliances to help you on a day-by-day basis. So people, women would would go from their neighborhood to a middle-class neighborhood and they would work long hours as a servant and then go back and look after the family. So women in the 19th century are working in the home, so they have to look after the home because the, the man of the house will not do any housework. That was part of the culture. Men did not do housework. Women did all the housework. They were responsible for family budget. They were responsible for uh, shopping for food. They were responsible for everything except the footwear. The man's job was make sure everyone had proper boots and shoes. Everything else the women did. And they also worked as a servant or as a, a doing laundry or as a charwoman taking tea around the or doing... Can't have been good for the box for women. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, w- w- uh, women's life in the in the working class women's life in the ninth century was abysmal. And the other the other part of the culture, of course, is it's a very patriarchal uh, uh, culture. So uh, men, working men who work incredibly long hours themselves and have uh, um, uh, you know th- their their lives are not great either. But basically, they expect their their wives or their spouses, because not everyone was married, of course. Um, to provide for them and they would do nothing around the household. What they would actually do is uh, they would give their paycheck to uh, to their wife or their spouse. They would keep some of it for their own tobacco and drinking. They give the rest of the money to the uh, to their spouse and their spouse was responsible for everything around the house and the household, but buying all the food, buying clothing, everything and making it and preparing it. And also uh, talking about working conditions, the diet of most working working people was very poor um, and women of the household had the poorest diet because any meat that might be consumed first went to the male head of the household. On Sunday, there was a, this cultural tradition that you always had meat on Sunday, mm. right? Of some kind, even if it was just bacon. But usually there was not enough money for everyone to have meat. Uh, and so the the, the female uh, the head, the, the wife, the spouse, she often went without. She often didn't eat as well as her husband because it was part of the culture. So it's uh, the conditions for uh, working women 
in the 19th century were, were abysmal, both in their home and, um, and in the workplace. If you were middle class, it was completely different. Middle class women have a fairly cushy life and aristocratic women, of course, have a like, life of luxury. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on your, your class. Uh, but but for you know at least half maybe two thirds of the population the women's lives were were abysmal were, were truly awful. I think we'd rather wrap it up there. But thank you so much for coming. But before we go, I of course have to ask: Do you have a favorite literacy work from the 19th century? Oh, um, well, I I quite, I quite like Dickens, Dickens. Although I think my my favorite Dickens novel is not about the 19th century. It's a mm-hmm. tale of two cities, which is about of course the French Revolution. Um, but there's a, there are some great. And great I got to say that I uh, watched Chairs a while ago, and I mentioned that quite a few times in the podcast. I love I love when Fraser going to read the Tale of Two Cities uh-huh. to the Daniel Chairs, and uh, one of my favorite scenes from the show, actually. Yeah, no, no I, I like that one. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, if you're interested in social conditions, there are some great. Great novels by people other than Dickens. Mary Barton has a very yeah, got Jane Austen too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, so Elizabeth Gaskell. I mean, Austin is is interesting for high society. Mm. Um, obviously, um, later in the in the nineteenth century, George Gissing has some really good novels about what it was like to be uh, lower middle class, to be a clerk, because one of the things that happens in the nineteenth century is you have lots of people who are not working class but are not wealthy either, and they work in in you know offices as clerks because of that rise of clerks and and, that, and and that's a pretty miserable existence too so yeah there's, there's some great there's some great novels I, I, and of I, course that we mentioned is well it's not fiction you've got Gibbons Decline of Fall too which is a must read if you are yes although Gibbons of course was writing in the 18th century right mm. so oh right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, so he, he was part of the Enlightenment really yeah no I mean a, there's some great literature obviously in the in the 19th century I do the same. It takes a long, a long time to read it though, because they mm. they got paid by the word, right? Yeah. So, so there's no, there was no incentive to be succinct. They went on and on and on. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to say my favorite story, and it's funny because I'm the South Park that I've discovered it's one which was South Park in a parody of it. And what, oh, what an episode! It's Great Expectations. Yes. Actually, it's so it's kind of personal to me because it's something similar had did happen. Well, I did not get a wealthy benefactor that did. <laughs> the, the girl part that did the I wish I wish I got a wealthy benefactor, but you know it's uh, the girl part that didn't kind of happen to me. So yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. personal kind of in a sense, great expectations, and I think it still holds up today. And it's been some amazing adaptations of, sure. the, of his work as well. And right, and, and one, also, of, one mean, of my favorites by far. Yeah, I mean the other one, the other one that everyone knows, I'm sure, is a Christmas Carol, right? I mean yeah. where you know. Uh, and again, that's uh, he, 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 just to to, to put a, a a period, a full stop behind what I've been saying about Dickens and social critique. I mean, the the character he's critiquing there is the is the miser, right, Scrooge, who is a you, you know who he's and he's he's standing in for this whole class of people, in Dickens' view, or who put money ahead of of human happiness, and that's that's Dickens' point, right? That you know the the industrial economy, the economy of the nineteenth century, this hard nosed, you know, attitude towards the economy was ruining people's lives, and mm-hmm. and that's and that's what he didn't like, and that's why his characters are the way they are, and he's taking it from real life. There are people like Scrooge. There's no doubt about it. I just also want to say I apologize for placing Jimmy in the wrong century oh, earlier, no there, but. Uh, 
But uh, thank you so much for coming. Before you go, where can people buy your books? Do you have any links you want me to put in the description before you go? Anything you wish oh, to you promote? Can... No, no, I don't. I, you, know, you can you can get you can get my books um, on Am- on Amazon is the easiest. Uh, all well, I think all my books are on Amazon. Certainly the the textbook I uh, I, I referenced at the beginning, or you referenced That's at the beginning. That's the one in Britain that, since 1688, in the world. Yeah, you can get that one. That's a, and that's a that's a survey of British history, uh, and you can get that on Amazon or directly from Rutledge. But yeah, my other books are all there too. So. so thank you so much for coming this has been well that is well we are available on spotify apple podcast youtube wherever you can find podcasts under instagram under the same name well that age well if you are an apple podcast please take your time to write a review and if you do have a request for a historian you want me to put on the podcast please comment either on youtube or apple podcast and i will try to make it happen and thank you so much for listening please like share and subscribe And I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.